I love that line in that song, Speak, O Lord, until your church is built. And so the Lord speaks to us through his infallible, inerrant, and all-sufficient word. And so I ask you to open up that word this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to be focusing primarily on verses 12 through 27. So 1 Corinthians 12, we'll read here in a second, verses 12 through 27. We are um, not doing our normal thing of preaching specifically through books of the Bible, verse by verse. We are in a topical series that we do time to time uh, called A Healthy Body, where I really want us to look at the health of the church and how we each contribute to the health of the body. And we've been moving towards that. Last week we looked at the nature, or two weeks ago, we looked at the nature of the church from Matthew 16, 18, where we saw that Jesus builds his church on the apostolic confession and teaching that he is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God. And then last week we looked more at the purpose of the church from 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16, where we saw the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. That means the church holds up the truth. And one of the things I wanted us to see from last week is that one of the ways we hold up and, and display the truth is through the way we conduct ourselves in the household of God. Not referring to how we behave when we come inside a building, but how we treat one another, how we love one another. That is a huge testimony to the world of what the truth is. And so that leads us into an exploration of the ministry of the church. What do we do for one another in the church? How do we minister to one another in the church? And I told you we're going to be looking at some of the one another's of the scriptures. There are 59 verses in the New Testament that tell us that we are to do something for one another. And we're going to look at the first of those uh, today, or the, most, the foundational one today. And so hopefully you'll see how these sermons sort of connect with one another and build on one another. Now, as you're finding the passage of Scripture today, I was thinking about, um, as I thought about the, the pieces, the parts of the church that come together to make us who we are, I, I got to thinking about how oftentimes, well, I remember specifically uh, uh, when Noah was, I guess, two or maybe just under two, probably under two, and um, for Christmas, we bought this exosaucer. Does anyone know what the exosaucer is? It sort of replaced the walkers, right? The walkers were determined to be too dangerous, and they made these little saucers that the, the kid could sort of stand in and play with. And, and I remember um, the night before Christmas, as we are putting that together, he and, and uh, my father-in-law, and it was missing a piece. It was missing a key piece to the exosaucer. Uh, it kind of had these little feet that went on the bottom of it, and if it didn't have that one foot, it would, it would tip over. It would be an exo flipper, all right? And it needed to be an exosaucer. And uh, I remember having to go back to Walmart and actually get one that had all the parts and how frustrating what that was. And maybe you have the opposite experience of that. I've had this happen as well sometimes where you're actually putting something together and you know, so you got your instructions. So right here I have instructions I just picked up this morning to, to my grill at home. And it just has this, you know, all these different little pieces and parts and and then it has pictures of how you're supposed to kind of put this onto this, onto this, onto this. I don't know if you've ever had the experience where you get done and there's pieces left over. And, and, and it's not just like some extra screw they sent. It's like something that looks like it's important to the integrity of the whole product, right? That's sitting there and you're going, where does that go? What's, what's the use for that? Now, luckily, uh, my grill came already assembled and this just came to the side. But when I was thinking about that... I was thinking about this text this morning. I was thinking about how in God's plan, in God's design for the church, there should be no missing parts. God puts his church together exactly the way he wants it put together. There should be no missing parts, and God never has spare parts. In the church, there should be no one left off to the side just as a spare part that's not needed in the body of Christ. God builds his church, as we've talked about, and he designs it in such a way that every single person he brings into the church, both the universal church and the local expressions of the body of Christ, every single piece, every single person he brings into that has a very, very important functional purpose. There are no spare parts. There should be no missing parts. And so I want to ask you to stand now as we read this passage of Scripture that speaks of God's design for the church. It's this famous passage of Scripture that uses the metaphor of the human body to describe the church. And as you're 
finding that passage of Scripture, just let me, know, let me remind you, we stand because this is the, the authoritative Word of God. This is infallible in error, and it's all sufficient. So 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 12, says this. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And on, un, on our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this glorious passage of scripture that we can only begin to scratch the surface of today. I thank you for the truth taught in it that we are every single person that's part of the body of Christ including this local expression of body of Christ, every single person who's a part of it, is indispensable. Indispensable. Father, I wonder how many are here this morning that feel like they're just an add-on, they're dispensable. Lord, I wonder how many are here this morning and have neglected their gifting because they don't consider themselves to be indispensable. I wonder how many there are here this morning that look at another brother or sister and don't see in them perhaps what they think they see in themselves and therefore they consider that person dispensable. Lord, may these sinful attitudes be struck, struck down by your word this morning. So give us ears to hear, give me a mouth to speak, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. There are many different metaphors that are employed in the scriptures to help us get our mind around the nature and the purpose and the mission of the church. For example, the church is called a field, the church is called a building, an olive tree, a flock, a vine, so look at that this morning a little bit, a house, a building, it's called a bride. But perhaps no metaphor is more striking and more powerful, more revealing than this metaphor of the church as a human body. And as we'll see as we go through the text today, as we go through the sermon today, it's really more than a metaphor, okay? It's more than just a mere metaphor. The church is the body of Christ. Now, the most famous passage that employs this metaphor of a human body as the church is the one we just read here in 1 Corinthians 12. It's used the same way in Romans 12, the passage that Deemer read earlier. And then Paul uses the metaphor of a human body in a slightly different way in Ephesians 4 and in Colossians chapter 2. But all of the uses of this metaphor refer to how we interact with and depend upon each other in the church. This metaphor is not a metaphor about our mission into the world. But that's the way I think most Christians use it. What is the phrase? We are the hands and feet of Christ. That's not 
Paul's design for the metaphor. The metaphor in all those passages I mentioned earlier is primarily referring to the way we interact with and treat each other. It's referring to our unity, our diversity, our maturity, growing up into Christ who is our head. Now, it is true that the church is the extension of Christ's ministry on the earth. And we are to be his hands and feet in the world, showing his love and sharing his good news. But the metaphor of the body, especially this one we're looking at today, has much more to do with how we treat and love one another. And as I said earlier, this metaphor applies to the universal church, but Paul is wanting to make specific application to the church in Corinth here, and so it refers to the local church as well. Now as we come to today's text, you need to know that that church in Corinth needed this teaching really, really badly because they needed to kill some sins that were plaguing their congregation. There were divisions. There were jealousies. There was selfish ambition. There was pride. There was unloving judgment over secondary issues while at the same time there was a foolish overlooking of serious issues in the church. Quite simply, the church in Corinth was a mess. And so Paul here is addressing that division and that dysfunction of the Corinthian church by employing this powerful metaphor of the church being like a human body. Now this morning we're going to focus primarily, as I said earlier, on verses 12 through 17, which I just read. But I want to back up a little bit. So if you've got your Bibles open, which I hope you still do, back up to verse 4. And I want to attempt to give us four general truths about the body of Christ, about the church, Um, starting back at verse 4, before we jump into what verses 12 through 27 are teaching us. So Paul, in verses 4 through 11, uh, says this. Let's begin in verse 4. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. So in that one verse right there, we see the first two general truths that I want us to take hold of this morning. And that is simply this. In 1 Corinthians 12, we see unity, we see diversity. Now there are a variety, there's the the diversity, of gifts, but the same Spirit. So listen to that unity and diversity as I continue to read verses 5 through 10. Just listen to it. Verse 5. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. Now let me just stop right there. You see there, Paul is talking about variety, but same. Variety, but same spirit. Variety, but one spirit. Now, we're not going to talk this morning about all the specific gifts. I know that 1 Corinthians 12, the the main reason most people go to this chapter in the Bible is to start trying to figure out what all these gifts are, which of the gifts continue today, which of the gifts have ceased, and all of that kind of stuff. We're not going to go there today. We'll save that for some other time. Today, let us simply see that in the church, there is unity amidst diversity. And the metaphor of a human body that Paul is going to get to in the next verses helps us to see that more clearly, helps us to see unity amidst diversity. Now, when it comes to unity in the church, we must understand that unity is of utmost importance to God. Too often, people treat unity as a secondary issue when the Bible makes it very clear that unity is a primary issue. Ironically, people use secondary issues to destroy unity. But the Bible calls for us to preserve unity by being able to lovingly disagree on secondary issues. Now, how do I know that unity is of utmost importance to God? Well, we know that because it's what Jesus prayed for us in John chapter 17. Let's just look at verses 22 through 23. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, 
even as you loved me. So there's, there's so much in just those two verses right there. But the main thing I want to drive home is simply that unity is important. The unity of the church reflects the Godhead, first of all. And secondly, the, the truth of our union with Christ, which is taught in those two verses right there, demands unity. And we'll get to that a little bit more here in a second. Now, a great many of the one another passages, those 59 one another passages um, that I mentioned, that a great many of those that we'll be looking at over the next few weeks deal with the issue of unity. It's vital to the health of Harbin's that we recognize that unity is of utmost importance to God. Knowing that truth directs how we conduct ourselves in the household of God. Again, not about our behavior in a building, but our love towards one another. So that unity directs and teaches us how we are to conduct ourselves in the household of God. Let me just go to Ephesians 4 real quick here. Ephesians 4 verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So that's the conduct. Then he says this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. One another. There's some of those key one another's right there. And why? Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 4, there is one body. And one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So the unity of the body communicates something to the world about God. So are we going to be a pillar and buttress of truth? That's the question. Well, then unity is important. A key to pursuing unity, one of the keys to pursuing unity, as we'll see today, is to recognize and truly embrace our rich diversity. Deemer read Romans 12 earlier, but I'm going to refer to that text a few different times today as we go through the sermon because it parallels today's text so well. So let me just go there real quick. Romans 12, verse 4. It says this, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. There's the diversity. Verse 5, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. There's the unity. Continuing, verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Now that's, we'll come back to that here in a little bit. According to the grace given us. Let us use them. So what's the purpose of our diversity? Is to use our different diverse gifts. Verse 6, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, to the one who teaches in his teaching, to the one who exhorts in his exhortation, to the one who contributes in generosity, to the one who leads with zeal, to the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, we'll, we'll touch a whole lot more here on our unity and diversity as we continue. But now, let's move on to the next general observation from this passage, and it's simply this word, sovereignty. Sovereignty. Verse 11, look with me. All these, this is, we're back in 1 Corinthians 12. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. In this series of sermons, we've already touched on God's sovereignty in a more overarching and general way. Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. Last week in 1 Timothy 3, it's the household of God, the church of the living God. So we've already touched on God's general sovereign ownership over the church. But today we see that God in his sovereignty extends into the very details and aspects of the giftedness that makes up the church. God is just not sovereign over the church in some general way, folks. I hope, if anything, over the past 10 years, I have driven home this point. God's sovereignty isn't this general umbrella that we're all just sort of under. God's sovereignty goes down to the very atomic structure of your body. And that's what we see here in the church. God's sovereignty over the very pieces that make up this church. That one spirit of God apportions to each gifts and talents as he wills. I read Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 earlier. Now let me read verse 7 of that passage. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace was given to us according to the measure of Christ's gift. If we keep verses like Ephesians 4, 7 in our mind, it'll help us fight the sin that Paul is going to highlight where we think too highly of ourselves or we think too less of ourselves. Because God has a portion. In other words, if we fall into the sins that Paul's going to point out later in, in 1 Corinthians 12, we are actually 
doing violence against the sovereignty of God. That's important. I also read Romans 12, 4 through 8 earlier. And if you paid attention, you heard that our gifts are according to the grace given to us. But I actually want to now back up to Romans 12, 3. And let me read that verse to you again. It says that our giftedness is according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Before you judge your brother or sister in the church for their lack of faith, read this verse. We function in the church according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Your strong faith in one area is meant to help your brother who has weak faith in the same area. And then correspondingly, his strong faith in another area is meant to help you in your weak faith in that same area. Because that's the way God's designed it. This interdependence of the body of the church. Now let me move on real quickly to the fourth general thing we see here in 1 Corinthians 12. And it's simply uh, here, from this point forward, we'll kind of camp out in verses 12 through 27. It's identity. So 1 Corinthians 12, we see unity amidst diversity. We see God's sovereignty over that. And we see the identity of the church. And what do I mean by that? Well, to help you see that. I want anyone to look up here real quick. Just look up here. Don't look at your Bible. I'm going I'm to quiz you real quick, but you can't look down at your Bible. Here we go. Okay, I'm going to see if you were listening as I read the passage earlier. I'm going to read verse 12, and I'm going to pause, and we're going to see if we can fill in the blank here. Ready? Don't carry. You're looking at your Bible. I saw you. Look up. Look up. All right. Do you see? Some of you already cheated. Here we go. So here's verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one. So it is with the, or with what? The church? Is that what you think it should say? All right, everybody look back down and see what it says. So it is with Christ. So it is with Christ. Matter of fact, there's actually the word the in there. It says the Christ. But the translators just take it out because it's not necessary to understand what's being said. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. What's Paul saying here? He's speaking about, in that one little word, Christ, he is speaking a ton of theological truth about our identity. This may seem obvious to you, but it doesn't play out practically the way it should in the church. But our identity, not only individually, but as a body, is in Christ alone. Solus Christus. But I've said before and on several occasions that one of the most neglected doctrines in the church today is the doctrine of our union with Christ. If you were in Sunday school this morning in our adult Bible study, you heard us talk a little bit about that. And you heard us look at the life of Calvin and see how important that doctrine was to Calvin and to the Reformation. Union with Christ. I did not plan this sermon to line up with that Sunday school message. I'd already written this sermon when I watched the video and saw, oh, cool. Again, sovereignty of God to work these things together. But the point is, that doctrine, our union with Christ, is highly neglected in the church today. I personally believe that a robust recovery of the doctrine of our union with Christ will solve a lot of ills in the church. Union with Christ is quite simply the relationship between believers and Christ through which we receive and become partakers of every benefit of salvation. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. We are with Christ. We are being conformed to the image of Christ. Only biblical Christianity has such a concept. Buddhists are not in Buddha. Confucianists are not in Confucius. Muslims are not in Muhammad. But Christians, well, let me just put it this way, Christians are only truly Christians if they are in Christ. Oh, friends, every single aspect of our Christian life and every single facet of God's relationship to us, every single piece of our salvation is in some way connected to our union with Christ. So what do we have in Christ? Let me just go through a short list here. 
1 Corinthians 1.14, we receive grace in Christ. Romans 3.24, our redemption is in Christ. Galatians 2.17, we are justified in Christ. Ephesians 4.32, we have forgiveness of our sins in Christ. Romans 8.1, we have freedom from condemnation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we are a new creation in Christ. Romans 6.23, we have eternal life in Christ. Philippians 4.19, God supplies all our needs in Christ. Ephesians 1.3, we have every spiritual blessing of heaven in Christ. Colossians 1.28, we will be presented to God perfect in Christ. Romans 8.32, we cannot be separated from the love of God in Christ. And on and on and on. That's just a scratch of the surface. I had to edit the sermon down. And I took that list that I had, and I'm so weak and fallible as a preacher, I only did a, I was only able to scratch the surface myself, but I took my list and cut it in half. Believe me. The benefits we have in Christ are actually infinite in their nature. And more than that, our Christian life, not only are the benefits that we have in Christ, our Christian life can only be effectively and practically lived out in Christ. So let me give you another list. We are to walk in Christ, Colossians 2.6. We are to stand firm in Christ, Philippians 4.1. We are to rejoice in Christ, Philippians 4.4. We are to be strong in Christ, Ephesians 6.10. We are to be always praying and giving thanks in Christ, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 through 18. We are to exhort one another in Christ, 2 Thessalonians 3, 12. We are to live a godly life in Christ, 2 Timothy 3, 12. We can work hard in Christ, Romans 16, 12. We are to labor for the kingdom in Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Children, you are to obey your parents in Christ, Ephesians 6, 1. Let me just pause right there. That tells us something about Obedience, children, you will never be able to obey your parents the way you were designed to obey your parents until you are in Christ. So hear and listen to what your parents are teaching you. Hear the gospel, children, because it's only through the gospel that you can be in Christ. Quite simply, Philippians 4.13, we can do all things in Christ. John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nada. That's a little tongues for you right there. Nada. Nothing. And again, this is just a small sample. Our union with Christ is vital to every aspect of our Christian identity and perhaps no passage lays this out more beautifully than Ephesians chapter 1. So let me just read this for us and listen to the words in Christ or in him or in the beloved. Listen to this. Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In our union with Christ is sealed and secured through the work of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 verse 13 says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Thus, we see the whole Godhead, the whole Trinity, involved in the doctrine of our union with Christ, chosen in Christ by the Father from before the foundation of the world, saved in Christ by what he accomplished, kept in Christ by what the Spirit does as redemption is applied and we are conformed to Christ. There is so much more to say here, but not enough time to say it. But for now, let us see how important this is, union with Christ, to the nature and purpose and mission of the church. You see, usually we think of our union with Christ in regards to our personal identity, right? I use the doctrine of union with Christ all the time in counseling. And if you've gone through any counseling training, you know it's one of the, that's where we go. We go to union in Christ. The only way you're going to defeat 
anxiety and fear and different things in life is you understand who you are in Christ. So we know personally that we talk about our union with Christ, but we need to see it in relation to our corporate identity as well. We are united to Christ as individuals, and therefore we are united to one another, and thus we are corporately his body. How often do we think about our union with Christ in relation to our relationship with other people? Our reunion with Christ necessarily means we're united to all the people in this church who are true believers. We are united to Christ, and therefore we are united to one another, and thus we are his body. And in reality, it's more than a mere metaphor, friends. This body of Christ is not a mere metaphor. In Acts chapter 9, verse 4, when Paul was on his way to persecute, continue to persecute the church, Jesus appeared to him. What did Jesus say to Saul? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting what? Me. He didn't say, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting me? Because we are united to Christ. So this isn't just a metaphor to help us. Oh, that's cool. It's to understand there's something very real. There is a vital, mystical union that we have with Christ as his body. So we see why Paul uses the metaphor. is to help us to understand our union with Christ and with each other. And it's to show us how to conduct ourselves in the household of God. So verse 12 shows us that we are corporately joined to Christ just as our individual union with Christ is secured and sealed by the Holy Spirit, so too our corporate union is sealed by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13 now. We're back in 1 Corinthians 12. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. Real quickly, notice that Paul teaches that every Christian has received baptism of the Spirit. The word all here is is what he says. Notice the word all, but also notice we're baptized. It's the past tense. Every believer shares in this experience. It occurs at the moment we trust Jesus Christ. We are at the same time, by faith, united to Christ, and we are then immersed into Christ by the Spirit. We are baptized into Christ by the Spirit. Romans 8, 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. This means that baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a matter of having a certain level of spiritual maturity or achieving some advanced spiritual state, or receiving some sort of second blessing, to teach such, to teach those things I just said, is actually to do violence against the unity represented in today's text. To teach such denies today's text. The truth is that every true believer is baptized into Christ through the Spirit, and we are now on equal footing in the sense that we are all fellow members of the body of Christ. And again, we see the triune God at work. So we must also see that to some degree the church reflects the unity and diversity of the Godhead. So all that's to lead up to a question I have. Who are we? Not just individually, but who are we corporately? So to continue in your notes here, who are we? We are in Christ and therefore members one of another. We are in Christ and therefore members one of another. There's the first one another we're going to focus on. Before we can get to love one another, care for one another, teach one another, and all the other 59 one another's, this is the most important one. We are members of one of another. Members of one another. This is a foundation, foundational one anotherness, is to understand we are united together. We are members one of another. Now, again, I want you to see where I'm going with all this. I, I have, I've been promising we're going to get to all these one another texts and talk about how we are to, to, to treat each other in the body, but it starts right here, knowing that we are members one of another. There are two texts that say this specifically, specifically use this phrase. We saw one earlier in Romans 12, 5. It says, though we are many, we are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And the other one is in Ephesians 4, 25, where it says, for we are members one of another. So those are the two passages where we have it spelled out exactly the way I wrote it here, members one of another. But perhaps no passage articulates this concept of mutual one anotherness than does today's text. In the remainder of today's text, Paul points out two sinful behaviors that attack our identity as members of one another. These two sins attack the one anotherness of Scripture. So we're going to look at these two sinful attitudes that attack our corporate identity in Christ. And here's the first one. We sinfully attack our one anotherness if we downplay our importance in the body. We sinfully attack our one anotherness if we downplay our importance in the body. 1 Corinthians 12, 4, 14, I'm sorry. 
For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Now, Paul, through the metaphor of the body, he's actually using a little bit of humor here to to drive home the absurdity of having any sort of attitude that downplays or diminishes one's role in the church. Paul says it's absurd, as as absurd as a hand thinking it doesn't belong to the body because it's not a foot. It's absurd to have an attitude that downplays your importance to this church. It's quite simply the truth. Any sort of attitude of self-loathing that says, well, I guess I just don't have anything to contribute, I guess I'm just not needed, is utterly sinful to the core. Such an attitude is a denial of God's good design. It's actually false humility. It's actually hidden pride. Do you really think that you know better than God? Do you really think that you see things better than God? Do you think you know how you're designed better than God? Do you really charge the living God with mistakes? Was he a careless manufacturer who accidentally left some spare parts at Harbin's? Far be it from us to have that type of attitude. Don't you dare think that he is unable to assemble the body as he sees fit. What pride and what arrogance masked in meekness and lowliness that is. If you are in Christ and you are joined to a local body for a reason. Paul drives home that point as he continues here. Look at verse 16. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. And again, Paul says the same thing. That would not make it any less a part of the body. Just, you are not less a part of the body because you feel or think you are. The father of lies, Satan, whispers such sinful thoughts in your ear. But our heavenly father says, through the apostle Paul here, that such an attitude doesn't accord with reality. It's not true. Just because you say you're not a part of the body doesn't make it true. Philippians 4, 8 says to think about what's true. You are a vital, indispensable, according to the truth of God's word, you are indispensable to Harbin's Community Baptist Church. Now, sometimes, sometimes it's not a feeling of inferiority that drives our unwillingness to be used in Christ's body. Sometimes it's jealousy. The ear feels inferior and is jealous of the eye. Just kind of keep going with the metaphor here. The eye is out front, whereas the ear is on the side. No one, no one talks about the ears. Lovers look into each other's eyes, not into each other's ears. I doubt any of you have actually gone up to someone else in this church and said, you have incredibly attractive ears. But you may have said that about someone's eyes. Oh, you're, you're, the color of your eyes is just beautiful. The only person that looks into our ears is our mother when he says, you've got dirt in your ear, right? Yet our ears are vital. They are critical to the function of the body. So why should the ear say, I don't count, I'm not needed? No, God equips the ear to do what the ear does. To carry the metaphor forward, God rewards the ear based upon how well it acts as an ear, not as an eye. God has equipped you to do exactly what he wants you to do. And don't dare insult him and say that his role for you is not important. Don't dare insult him and question his design. But even if one doesn't have an attitude of uselessness or an attitude of jealousy, sometimes our actions reflect the same sin of failing to recognize our unique importance to the body of Christ. He who contributes little of his time and his talents and his treasures to the body of Christ is guilty of the same sinful behavior that minimizes the very importance of every single member of the church. We see that reflected in Jesus' parables in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30, that famous parable of the talents. We've each been entrusted with different talents, different gifts, as the Lord, as our master has seen fit. And we will be held accountable for what we do with those talents. To fail to see your important role, to fail to see the body's need for you, is to live for yourself and its sin. 
Ephesians 4.11 says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. I hope you know this next verse. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The body is only as strong to the degree that the saints, the individual parts, are doing their job. So, don't you see diversity? Diversity of roles is not only a reality, it's a necessity. Look at verse 17. The body can't function unless we recognize the diversity. Verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Quite simply, God has gifted you with unique qualities that are needed for the church to function as it is supposed to function. How many churches are not firing on all cylinders because of people sitting on their giftedness? Harbin's Community Baptist Church cannot be a healthy body moving forward if we don't see our individual and unique calling and giftedness. And if we don't see that it's absolutely indispensable. Unity doesn't eliminate your individuality. It actually enhances it. I've heard someone say, wait a second, if we're all being conformed to the image of Christ, if we're all being made one in Christ, doesn't that just mean my individuality has to sort of disappear? No. It actually is a testimony to the, to the image of God that we are so unique. My dad did this, uh, used to do this thing called the Strengths Finder Test. You've probably heard of that before, where you find your 34 strengths. And the, 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 the odds that you would have the same top five strengths with someone else is one in 34 million. Not to mention the odds of all of your strengths being in the exact same order. Basically, that's impossible. It's statistically impossible. Here's what I gather from that. That the image of God that we've created in is so vast, so glorious, that each one of us in our individuality reflects God. And so as we come together in one spirit, in Christ, our individuality isn't erased. It's actually enhanced because we see how we fit and how we function and how needed we are. That's what we see in the body of Christ in this glorious diversity. Now we come now to verse 18 and we see once again like a drumbeat that plays beneath the whole story of Scripture. Okay, If there's been anything in my 10 years of ministry at Harvest, hopefully you've heard this drumbeat and it's the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? In other words, the church can't exist if we don't see and understand the diversity. Verse 20, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Oh, Harbins, we must see if our attitudes or maybe just your actions diminish or downplay your role at Harbins, you are in sin. I don't know how to say it any less offensively. If your attitudes or your actions downplay your role at Harbin's, you are in sin. You are failing to believe in and trust in the sovereignty of God. You are sinfully depriving this church of its health. You are, in essence, attacking the beautiful unity of the body. You are denying the necessary diversity of the body. You are tarnishing the glorious identity of the body, and you are resisting God's sovereignty over the body. Now, that's one sin, but there's another sin represented in today's text. Not only do we sinfully attack our one anotherness if we downplay our importance in the body, we also do it if we overestimate our importance in the body. God does not want us to downplay and get rid of our individuality and our uniqueness. That would be sin. But at the same time, if we see our individuality and our uniqueness as superior or separate, and therefore above the health of the whole church, that too is great, great sin. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 21 now. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. It is sinful to overestimate our importance and therefore downplay the importance of others. This means that it is sinful to look at your brothers and sisters in the church and fail to see that you need them as much as they need you. It is sinful to look at your brothers and sisters in this church and fail to see that they are an invaluable, indispensable part of God's plan for this church. 
It is sinful to look at your brother and sisters in this church and think or act in such a way that we put ourselves above them. Such an attitude is prideful. It is foolishly puffed up, and it harms the body. Again, Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. To think more highly of oneself is, again, an assault on the diversity, the unity, the identity, and the sovereignty of God. It is sinful self-importance, it is self-righteousness, and it is anti-gospel. So naturally, flowing out of our sinful overestimation of ourselves comes sinful judging and looking down upon others. We must not look down upon others because they don't share our unique giftedness or because they don't share our exact ministry passions or because they don't exactly do what we are called to do in the body or because they don't have exactly the same convictions we have. It is filthy, sinful, self-righteousness, self-importance to think or act in such a way. We tend to forget that many of the strengths that we so admire in one person are often incompatible with the strengths we admire in another's. Let me think, let me just kind of demonstrate this on a, on a bigger scale. And I got this from someone else, but it just, it just it drove home the point. The diligent research and study of my favorite theologian, from whom I draw much benefit, doesn't leave much room, much time, I should say, for the globe-trotting compassion of my favorite missionary, from whom I draw much inspiration. But I don't judge the theologian for not doing missions, and I don't judge the missionary for not spending more time in the study. Each is gifted differently, and we must see that truth applies in the local congregation as much as it does in the church universal. So, self-importance and self-righteousness produce a sinful type of judgment in the church that we are commanded to avoid. Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Romans 14, 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, let me just say, especially if you in that Romans 14 passage, let me just say, of course, there are core essential doctrines and issues facing the church that we must all be uniform on. Truths without which we don't have any real unity. And we are to correct and admonish each other in those areas. But there are many, many, many more peripheral, non-essential doctrines and issues facing the church that do not truly threaten our unity. And we are to be careful not to condemn each other in those areas. Hopefully you guys have heard. Again, another thing that I've said for a long time now is, is, is I've pointed you to that article on theological triage. If you don't know what I'm talking about, please catch me after the service because it's very helpful to think through this issue. But we don't have time to really address it right now. As we move on, we see that Paul... Uh, goes beyond just the negative command here. He goes beyond the negative command not to overestimate one's importance. He moves on to a positive command, namely to show honor and care for one another. And we can spend a lot of time really on verses 22 through 25. At a different time, maybe I would do that to really exposit this a little bit more. But let's just look at this, this section in general. It really boils down to one thing. Verse 22. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body. Again, God's sovereignty. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. This all boils down to caring for one another. That's the positive command. Don't overestimate your importance. Instead, care for the body. When you are tempted to sinfully think less of that brother or sister in Christ, don't do that. Instead, go care for them. How can you love them? Maybe there is an area they need to grow. They don't need you pointing your finger at them. They need you coming alongside them, caring for them. That's what we need in the body. Paul argues that every member of the body is necessary. Every member needs to be cared for. There are no exceptions. Those body parts that are deemed weaker, less honorable, or less presentable are critically important. How does this apply to the church? Well, every church has people who are out in front, in the forefront, who have the public spotlight. But what is really essential to the ongoing life of the church are the people behind the scenes. Those who serve faithfully and quietly. I read a quote this week that your preaching 
in your church will be, only be as effective as the praying that's going on in the church. The behind the scenes work. I've seen this. When we were planting, we were involved in a church plant in Arkansas. To my disgrace, I cannot remember her name. There was a little old lady who served at our church body, and she came, and she's, we asked her, what, what, where do you feel your gift? And she says, I do one thing. I pray. <laughs> he said, you send me everything you want me to pray for. Send me every list. Send me every person. I will pray, 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 pray. And during that season, the church grew from about what, what was really two families to about, at its peak, it was about 80 people. And and then she left. She had to go away. Her health demanded that she move closer to her relatives. And so she left. And the church began to get weak almost immediately. Same preaching, same discipleship going on. We lost our prayer warrior. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget how the church turned. Now that church is still alive, praise God, today, and thriving in, in um, Pea Ridge, Arkansas. But at that season, that time, we went back down from those 80 people back down to about 15 in a matter of six months. And not that the health of the church is just measured by numbers. You guys know me by now. I'm not measuring it by numbers. But there was other things going on. There was an unhealthiness happening in the body when that prayer warrior left. Paul rejected the Corinthians' criteria for evaluating which gifts were most honorable or that got the most mentioned. The sole purpose of the gifts in Paul's mind is to build up the body of Christ. The true criterion for the greatness of any gift is its usefulness to the body of Christ. So we see two sinful behaviors that need to be put to death. They exist in every church. They just do. They must be put to death in every church. Do not sinfully downplay your importance to Harbin's. Secondly, do not sinfully overestimate your importance to Harbin's. So in conclusion, the one another, the one another that drives all the one another's is simply that we are members one of another. That drives everything else from this point forward in this sermon series. I hope, I hope you're seeing the connections I'm making from one passage to the next. I know my brain's not functioning at the full RPMs right now, but hopefully this is making sense to you. Verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Hey, hey, any of you guys out there that have been ever, ever sick at any point in your life understand what Paul's saying here. One part of your body is in pain and sick, it affects your whole body. You don't go to work and leave your sore arm at home. Your whole body is affected. When you stub your toe on the coffee table at home, your whole body crumples to the ground, right? If one member suffers... All suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And finally, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Unity, diversity, identity, God's sovereignty. Do you believe these things? Do you live these things? Do your attitudes and your actions in this church joyfully Support or sinfully attack the unity of the church, the diversity of the church, the identity of the church, and God's sovereignty over the church. There are no missing parts in God's plan, and there are no spare parts in God's plan. Let's pray.